Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. If you are listening at home, you won't even notice a difference. But if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm now recording the intro with video. And these intros are going to get even more awkward and uncomfortable because there's a video of myself in front of myself. I'm trying to look right in the camera so I don't see my big, dumb, goofy face. But anyways, this is Mindful Metal Jacket. Oh, I just looked at myself. Brutal. Really brutal. Anyways, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for listening or watching. If you're watching, this is a, this is a red letter date, whatever that means in the history of the show. This is the first video with a video intro. And uh, normally I take about 25 takes to do these intros. But with the video, I don't want to do that because it'll be a pain in the ass. So I'm going to try to just get through this one. And again, if you're listening at home, it's it's just me and my little intros, which maybe they're too long. I don't know. How do you feel? Some people love the intros. Some people hate them. But um, either way, it's here. I'm here. You're here. Well, you're there. Wherever you are, I hope that you're uh, feeling well right now, at least in this moment. Uh, the exercise I like to do, and I've mentioned before, I heard it first from Eckhart Tolle, or however you say his name, Toll, Tolomaj. Pause for a moment. Sit, stand, pause, be still, breathe, and ask yourself, what is actually wrong in this moment? And the answer is almost always nothing. You're worrying about something that has already happened or hasn't yet happened. My friend, uh, a friend of mine told me about, he went to his friend's house and his friend had a little sign on the bathroom wall that said, it's not going to go that way. And um, he had another sign uh, by the door when you leave the apartment that said, it's not going to go that way either. And um, I like that. So, you know, just relax, let it be, as they say, as Paul McCartney once said, sang, actually more than once, a whole bunch of times, and then Sesame Street did, the letter B, the letter B, it was really clever, great show. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for uh, tuning into the show, appreciate you, subscribe to um, the YouTube, subscribe to the podcast, leave a nice review, I appreciate all the kind reviews, I appreciate all the kind messages and tweets. And tell some friends. That's the best thing you can do for the show. If you're enjoying it, reach out. Tell a friend to check it out as well. Tweet it. Post it. Instagram story. All that good stuff. It all helps. Would love to try to grow the show. And um, today, we have a special guest. My new friend, Mike Wilner, who, if you're a sports fan, baseball fan, you might know as the voice of the Toronto Blue Jays for, uh, I think, about 20 years he recently has moved on from that job, as we discuss, and he's now uh, writing for the Toronto Star, I believe it is. And um, he reached out. He was a, he's a fan of the show, and um, he's messaged me a few times saying uh, how much he enjoyed the Gary Gullman episode of this show specifically. Check that out if you haven't already. And I said, hey, you should come on the show sometime. And, um, and he did. Now, I want to... Just warn everybody up front, I feel terrible. This is my fault, but uh, there's quite a bit of baseball talk 
in this episode up front and towards the end. And um, it's my fault. I'm a baseball nerd, as is Mike. <clears throat> Obviously, he's in the the field. And so I just couldn't resist talking baseball. So I will say there is a lot of the, the sort of body of the episode. There is a lot of anxiety talk. We talk about panic, anxiety, and worrying about what people think and um, sort of imposter syndrome and, and all of those good things. But there is some baseball talk up front. And then uh, towards the end, this is a longer episode. We talk, we go, I just went deep as I am obsessed with, uh, not obsessed, but uh, a great admirer of play-by-play announcers. I wish I was one. And so uh, we talk a little bit about that. Now, if you're an anxiety sufferer and a fan of the pod, and you also happen to be a baseball fan, you're in for a real treat. But I apologize to those who are going to find that boring, but maybe you'll find it interesting. Um, Anyways, there's some interesting stuff in there. So uh, I say keep an open mind, give it a chance, and uh, you could always skip ahead 15 seconds at a time if you're listening to it as a podcast or whatever but there is a lot of great stuff in there uh, in here and uh, i really really enjoyed the the hell out of it it really made me smile and warmed my little cockles and uh, i think mike had a nice time as well and um you can check him out he's on twitter and uh he's writing articles about the toronto blue jays all all season so um i really enjoyed the episode and uh Again, apology. Well, maybe not apologies. It's my show. Fuck off. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I go back. I go back to apologies if uh, for all the baseball talk if you hate baseball. But if you hate baseball, what are you doing? Maybe that is your problem, bringing it back to mental health. Maybe you should open yourself up to um, some, some baseball, some passion for the great game as it is uh, quite relaxing and also quite anxiety-inducing. I'll just tell this quick story. We'll get to the interview. But... Um, in 2003, October, I was hospitalized because I was uh, no, no kind, sweet way to say this. I was shitting blood and I went, uh, I was having extreme anxiety. I went to the hospital, they did all kinds of tests. And then finally the doctor said, have you been under a great deal of stress? And I said, of course, it's Red Sox Yankees American league championship series here. And he said, well, you should relax. It's just a game. But, uh, I was hospitalized due to baseball and probably a lot of other things, but Anyways, that is that. Uh, I hope that you are doing well. And I, I might have read this quote already before in a past episode, but I'm, I'm rereading Pema Chodron's book, Welcoming the Unwelcoming, Unwelcome, Welcoming the Unwelcome. Oh, I stink. Wholehearted Living in a Brokenhearted World. It's a fine book. I recommend it. There it is. Bang. There's another book behind it. And that's about sobriety. <clears throat> Anyways, here's a quote from Pema Chodron how not to lose heart as we individuals grow in our resilience as we become better at staying conscious and not losing heart we will be able to remain strong in challenging conditions for the long haul this is within the capacity of all of us boy i really screwed up a lot of things in this episode here it is enjoy my delightful conversation with the very kind very sweet and funny mike wilner All right, we're live. This is recording. We're going. This is it. This is how all my podcasts start. <laughs> this is it. It's happening. And uh, Mike, thanks for thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to uh, talk to you. 
Well, thanks for having me. I, it's it's a uh, it's a real pleasure, honestly. I'm uh, I'm a fan of yours. I'm a huge fan of like all all things seller. Um, so I'm uh, I'm I'm real really geeked uh, to be doing this with you. Oh, thanks. and mental health and all things mental health. Same. I love uh, well, and and you're a baseball guy. I'm I love baseball, comedy, mental health. This is right in my uh, my wheelhouse to use a, what I think of as a baseball term, but it's probably not. What is wheelhouse? What is the uh, eptem- etymology or whatever <laughs> epidemiologist of uh, wheelhouse? I mean, what is the actual meaning of wheelhouse? I have no idea. I've always just heard of it as a baseball term. You know, um, uh, it's it's to be in to be in someone's wheelhouse is you know it's right where you want it. It's it's where you're the most comfortable and and uh, um, where things will will work out the best where you you're you're the best at this um cheesy 80s music for example my wheelhouse <laughs> right right yeah there must be some original thing i'm sure there's a wheelhouse somewhere in the 1500s or something but to and me it it's baseball horribly racist connotation <laughs> i imagine yeah almost everything does but um i'm reminded of a baseball story that has something to do with um mental health or at least my personal psyche is in Little League, I was in, I don't know, it's, it's probably different everywhere, but we called it, there was the major leagues and the minor leagues, and the minor league kids had to wear face masks, which I thought was hilarious. The kids in the majors didn't, but the kids in the minors did, and we thought it was so funny, the idea of they were a little less skilled, so they had to wear a face mask across their face because they might not get out of the way of the ball. But anyways, that was a side note. In my third year, it was three years, you're 10, 11, and 12, and in my third year, I was a really really good hitter and the best hitter on the team. And I had a three Oh count and no one ever got the green light in little league. Rarely do they in the big leagues, but no one ever did. And my coach, John Kelly said, I, he called me over in the middle of my bat. And he said, you have a great idea of the strike zone. I'm going to give you the green light on this, but it has to be right in your wheelhouse. And I said, you got it. And of course the pitch was over my head and I swung at it. Of course, because psychologically, I think I wanted the other everyone at the field to know that the coach had entrusted me that I had the green light. And I felt like no one would believe me if I didn't swing at the three Oh pitch. And then the next pitch, I was also out of the strike zone and I walked, but I remember thinking that was just a, a little humble brag there. I just did. And he was mad at me. Yeah. The, the best thing would have been if you'd swung at it and he didn't get mad at you. So, you know, you could have told people, look, he told me to swing three and oh. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but yeah. And I think that happens to big leaguers too. I've talked to a lot of guys who say they're just not comfortable swinging three and oh, and, and um, uh, even if they have the green light, even if they're that good, they'll still let a pitch go no matter where it is, just because I don't know, once they hit it up into the elevator shaft on a three Oh pitch and they'll never live it down. Yeah, it's so weird. And again, I don't want to go deep dive baseball, so I'll try to keep it as as mental health. As mentally healthy I'll as go possible. anywhere you want to take me. Um, but it, I'm a I'm a big believer, and I feel like I don't know the analytics. Obviously, you're like make them throw a strike, but I'm like you get a minimal amount of strikes, and if you're sitting on a fastball every time there's a three zero with runners on base, I'm like just hack at this thing, just launch it and obviously if it doesn't work out everyone hates the guy and hates the coach and all that stuff or the manager but i am a believer in swinging at the first pitch and swinging on 3-0 and if you're if you think it's going to be a, a strike i say hack at it and that could be a metaphor for mental health it certainly could but look um first pitch is put in play uh usually players hit well over 300 when they put the first pitch in play 
And I remember a couple of years ago, it might have been 18, might have been 19, Blue Jays hit something like six home runs on 3-0 pitches. So you're absolutely right in, in both those philosophies. But then the opposite of that is, uh, remember last year when Fernando Tatis swung at a 3-0 pitch and hit a three-run homer to make the score like, I don't know, 17-6 to or something. Oh, um, right. And the, the Texas Rangers got very, very upset with him. Oh, that's, I remember that was like trending on Twitter at one point and it ended up being this huge, um, you know, huge deal. And I never know where I fall on that in sports with football. That happens too. is teams kicking a field goal when they're up 20 and all this stuff or, or running up the score. And there's that, there's the one feeling of, well, keep us out of the end zone or, or don't, you know, uh, throw the ball past me. What do you want me to do? We're adults. And I understand that. And I also understand the idea of like, ah, eh, we got it one. What are we doing? I think, I think in football, basketball, that's more valid. Hockey, too, because there's a clock. Um, baseball, without it, my philosophy in baseball has always been when once you stop trying to score, I'll stop trying to score. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And one of the great things about baseball is if you're down 40 to nothing with two outs in the ninth, you know, you're going to lose, but you are still in it. Uh, technically, yeah. at, at some point in all the other sports, it becomes impossible to score that much. But baseball is uh, there is no there's there's no there's no clock, obviously, and really no official boundaries. Those lines go forever. There just happens yep. to be a wall there. It's um, obviously a special game, as you know, forever and ever. I've seen a couple of seven run bottom of the ninths. I saw um, Steve Pierce hit a walk off grand slam twice in a week. Um, so, yeah, there are there are some some really cool comebacks. One of the greatest. I mean, obviously my um, area of expertise is, is the Blue Jays, but um, I know you're a Massachusetts guy and, and uh, you were probably like a zygote then, but uh, in 1989, in June, the Blue Jays played a game at Fenway Park where they were down 10 to nothing in the seventh inning and they won. Wow. It's funny. I don't specifically remember that game. That was right in my, my wheelhouse, as it were, when I was getting really obsessed. 88 is sort of when I was really starting to get... Um, really hardcore into it, which, which I have to remind people, and I'm, I'm going to bring this to mental health soon, I promise, but I have to remind people, when I was a, a kid, kid, the Yankees weren't the big Red Sox rivals so much as the Blue Jays, because it was always, it was the Blue, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, the Yankees were pretty uh, mediocre, kind of whatever, and it was always the Blue Jays at the top of the division, so that was, to me, was like the Red Sox and Blue Jays, they were like our big enemy and and i don't remember the specific game but i remember there was a game at fenway must have been 90 91 ish or maybe it was 93 or something because it might have the blue jays were a powerhouse and the red sox somehow were just scoring on i think it was on the bullpen and there was a a, a picture of cito gaston pouring tylenol into his hand and i remember they, they <laughs> caught it on nesson and it was like this great moment of like the red sox had just scored eight runs in an inning or whatever it was and you just saw cito pouring some kind of pills into his hands and it felt like this moment of like yeah we're getting to them and uh, of course they got the last laugh but yeah they did a couple of times poor cito got had a, a terrible back it took him out of uh uh I don't know, like 10 games in 92 or 93 and Gene Tennis had to manage. So that's probably what it, what it was, but, uh, but, but I, I get that. I mean, and I remember, um, I, I remember 90, it must've been 90. Cause that was the year the Red Sox won the division in 90. I remember in game 161 or two, the Blue Jays were still in it. They weren't playing Boston, but I remember watching the Jays game and then they cut to, 
Fenway and Tom Brunanski slid into the right field corner to make a catch and that clinched the division for them. And then the Jays were out. So uh, yeah, it's a fun times that what a former colleague of mine still refers to as the urine soaked hell hole that is Fenway Park. Yeah, it's the best. And uh, Jeff Reardon was on the mound for that Bernanski catch. And um, that was uh, that was uh, that was special. I loved it. And then they got swept by the A's, of course. And that was uh, that was um, Morgan Magic, Joe Morgan. Uh, but now we're really uh, we've lost the entire <laughs> audience now at this point. So I, I want to talk, obviously, about um, anxiety. I love talking about anxiety, depression, all these mental health issues now. And I'm curious because you're we're a play-by-play guy for years and years, which is my dream job. And I think so many people's dream jobs, I would burn all of my comedy things to the ground to just to be a play-by-play guy for the, for the sock specifically. Um, I love it. I've always been one of those guys since I was a kid that would uh, do play-by-play. I still do it as I'm watching the games. And, and my first question, I, I mean, I want to get into anxiety, but let me ask you this. Cause I've always wondered this. Is do you ever have because I think of comedy as I'm on stage, I'm going through the next bit, two bits from now. What am I going to do after this? I'm down the road with bits. And I always like the analogy of like a duck. You just see him floating on the water, but underneath his feet are are paddling like crazy. I'm always wondering when you're calling a game and there's, you know, it's they're down two and there's two men on and, uh, you know, whatever home run hitters at the plate. Is part of your brain thinking what the call will be if this guy hits a bomb, if he hits a homer? Are you is that in your mind? Are you trying to be in the moment? How hard is it to stay in the moment? I guess that's several questions, but I'll just volley that back to you. Are you ever in your head going, it's a long drive just in your head and then he, he pops out or whatever? Yes, but <laughs> um, but it, it never comes out. Right. If any time I've ever thought what am I going to say if this happens and that happens, what I wind up saying is, has not, is completely different from what I imagined in my head. I don't know that that actually happens. I mean, like you say, you're thinking a bit or two ahead. Uh, I don't know if that happens during the actual play by play, maybe like between innings or even before a game, I thought, Oh man, you know what, if they, uh, you know, I, I rarely did I get to call the ninth inning. So I didn't get, very many of, uh, of those opportunities to have like, Hey, they clinched. What am I going to say? Or, or, or something like that. But anytime I've, I've ever thought this is what, this would be something cool to say. If this happens, once the moment happens, it, it's completely gone. And whatever comes out is, uh, is based on what, what I was looking at. Um, yeah. Like I think, one of the one of the coolest home runs I ever called happened in a spring training game. It was it was the last game of spring training in 2018. It was in Montreal, and um, there, there was a lot of extra emotion added on to it because at the time I thought that it was the last game that I would the last chance I would ever get to call a game. Um, you know, our, our lead guy who had been doing it for 36 years retired just before spring training. And uh, they had told me that I wasn't going to get the job that they were giving it to somebody else, but they let me do those two games in Montreal because the new guy had visa issues and couldn't get into Canada or had to get set up or whatever. So here I am sitting there thinking that I'm never going to call another major league game. Um, And they were in Montreal 
Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was 18 years old. He, they brought him to Montreal for these games, uh, playing where his dad used to play. You know, he was a folk hero there. And, um, and he, there's that famous picture of when he was two years old, standing at second base, tipping his cap to the fans, standing beside his dad. So it was a whole big Vladdy weekend. And it was nothing, nothing with two out in the bottom of the ninth. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr. came to the plate. So obviously I'm thinking, man, wouldn't this be something? Uh, and he hit a home run. And I, I can't remember whatever what came out of my mouth, but it was certainly nothing that I thought I might say if he did. Um, but uh, but that was that was the last time I called a walk-off. And, uh, and again, in, in the moment, I thought that that was it. Um, so it was, uh, it was pretty heavy, but, uh, it was, it was an awesome moment. And yeah, when he came to the plate with two out in the ninth, I thought, okay, if he goes deep, how cool would it be to, you know, and I'll say this and then he did. And I didn't. Right. Well, I mean, again, uh, like a metaphor for life. And that's why art exists essentially, which is a great monologue at the end of, uh, Annie Hall is that, you know, you're, you're, in art, you can at least create something ahead of time. You're like, I'll create this moment and then I'll say the perfect thing in the moment. But in life, you're always thinking like, oh, I'll say this or I'll behave this way. I'll act this way. This is going to be great. And then ends up just being a big pile of mush and everything. And then I don't know about you, but I spend my life. I mean, do you have this? Because I podcast a lot. Obviously, I'm just social a lot. I spend so much of my life laying in bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking I said that I can't believe I said this. I should have said that. Or what is this person thinking? How much anxiety and second guessing is there? Obviously, you're a public figure and you have a large audience. I mean, how much time are you spending thinking about a call you made or something you said or some face you made uh, do you obsess over stuff like that or does it roll off your back what what's your poison are we think uh, anxiety self-conscious do you hate yourself G- give me the, give me the goods here because all i think is if i called a major league baseball game i'd be going through every single out hit walk and i just saying i cannot believe i said that i'm an idiot <laughs> well it's really it's too bad we didn't connect a couple of years ago when I could have brought you into the booth and had you, you know, call about her or two, I would have loved to have. Oh, don't even say that. that opportunity, but <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm no longer a major league broadcaster, unfortunately. So I can't do that anymore. Um, my poison. Um, I, I, I never really sat and obsessed very much over, you know, something I said, I've only a couple of times said something where I thought, Oh, if somebody hears that, they can get me fired. Um, but, uh, but luckily nothing came of, of either of those things a long, long time ago. Um, no, I mean, it, it, it bugs me when I blow a call, um, you know, and again, another Vladdy story, his major league debut, I made the mistake um, and, and again, this was a really exciting time. It was, you know, this, he's the next great player. Everyone's super uh, jacked over, over Guerrero making his debut. And in his second at bat, I'm calling it. And he hits a deep fly ball the, to the left field corner. And, you know, the, the cardinal sin of broadcasting is to not watch the outfielders on a fly ball because they will tell you how well that ball is hit. Right. There have been tons of balls that off the bat, I didn't think going anywhere. And I see the left fielder just drop his shoulders and and start talking to the center fielder. And I know it's like 83 rows deep, uh, but the Vlad ball 
I was watching the ball and I was not watching, I think it was Mark Canna uh, in left field for Oakland. And I thought it was, I was caught up in the moment, the whole Vladiness of the day. And I thought it was going to be a home run. And I gave it that, you know, and, uh, and he caught it at jumping at the wall, at least. Right. It wasn't right. like, right. you know, it was a, give it the big call and it's a pop-up to the shortstop, but he caught it. And at the last second, as I'm watching the flight of this ball, I see the left fielder come into my field of vision and I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And, and he, he caught it and my voice broke on the call. Um, you know, I was about to say it's the next word was going to be gone, but the next word wind up, wound up being caught. Like, you know, and <laughs> so yeah, that bugs me. It bugs me that Kevin Biggio's first major league home run. I said he hit it into the 500 level at Rogers center, the upper deck, but he didn't he hit it. I think, off the facing, maybe into the 400 level. So that, I mean, I'm still talking about that two years later to you now that bugs me in that that was a special moment for, for this kid. This is his first major league home run. Here's the radio call and I blew it. So yeah, that, that kind of stuff sits with me and, and will for a while. Um, in 2003, I got my first opportunity to call major league play by play. Um, because there were the two broadcasters for the Blue Jays, legends in Toronto, Tom Cheek, who was the day one guy and called every 4,306 4, games in a row until he got brain cancer. And uh, we had to, he had to, we had to call 911. They took him out of the booth and hit surgery the next day. It was, Jesus. it was crazy. Yeah, but he's, I mean, he's like my hero, and to get to work with him was insane. Jerry Howarth was the other one who came on in 1981 and called games until 2017. Um, and Jerry got to work TV one day in 02. It was my first year in the booth. And so it was just me and Cheek. And he said, you can call the fifth inning. I was like, what, really? And so the, that, that first time, the top of the fifth was three up, three down. The bottom of the fifth was three up, three down. And I found a way to screw up a call. Uh. So, you know, I, I still remember that too, 20 years later. It was a pop-up to shallow left center. The shortstop, Chris Woodward, went out. The center fielder, Vernon Wells, came in. And I said, Chris Wells makes the catch. And I still don't know which one of them caught it. <laughs> But that must be part of, I mean, I imagine there's some acceptance and was, was Cheek, was he um, helpful and thoughtful? Did he say, ah, it happens. I've done it a million times. I imagine he was, had some grace or, or no. He might have even noticed. To be honest. <laughs> he might've been thinking about something else, but, um, but yeah, I mean, he always had the right thing to say and, and he was graceful and, and kind and, and wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I and think, I'm, oh, sorry. I, I he had, was going to say, I'm beating myself up about 20 years later. Yeah, of course. But I, I think he had the great call of uh, touch them all, Joe, you'll never hit a bigger one, which is one of my favorite calls ever. Yeah, uh, touch them all, Joe, you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. Yeah, that's a, that's a, um, a great one. Um, great. And apparently it's because, as you see in the bobblehead, the, the leaping of Joe Carter, he, he told the story that he saw Joe jumping around like crazy and was afraid he was going to miss a base. I so. I feel like he did. Oh no, I'm thinking of McGuire. McGuire missed first when he hit 
71 or, or, or 62 yeah, back, right? yeah he had to go back yeah and uh yeah similarly uh with with carter jumping around which was one of the most memorable world series of obviously of my life but i was 11 for that uh home run and, and one of the two walk-off home runs and world series history of course but um i love that um that call and I, I was thinking about speaking of calls i really am obsessed with uh baseball play-by-play but i i was thinking about it earlier with the you know um uh kind of pre-planning a call in your head and i think of 2000 nlcs i think it was, it was it was either al or nl i don't remember but it was i believe bob costas had the call he said start spreading the news new york new york and i thought even as a, I was 18 or whatever, I was like, this guy has been sitting on this yeah. for, you know, six weeks. Um, right. And I'm not going to rip Costas. He's a legend, but absolutely. That's a call, you know, um, that, that you knew he had planned in advance. And there, you know, a lot of these guys are phenomenal uh, with the word smithery. And, and uh, if they want to take that time to think up and add up and, and, and uh, come up with something, if X team wins, then, then that's awesome. The thing I loved about Cheek is it was zero canned calls, nothing. He didn't have a personalized home run call. He didn't have anything like that. I, I did my best to emulate that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I prefer it that way. But if there's something that you prepare that's perfect and fits the moment and is great, then then that's perfect too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and the Costas thing was great. I thought it was I thought it was great, but it was just one of those thoughts of like, ah, oh, he's sitting on that one. Um, but it was great. And I love that the, you can't remember which championship series it was because it was both New York teams in the World Series. Right? Yeah, I don't remember which one ended first. I feel like it was and if, if someone made me bet money, I'm going to say that the Yankees wrapped things up before the Mets did. I would think that, that the, I think the Yankees might have swept. Oh, they swept the Padres. After, uh, no, they swept the Mets, didn't they? That was the Mets. Yeah, I think it was. In, I think it was five. I think the Mets might have stolen oh. one in there, but I could be wrong about that. Actually, maybe not. You ask me about stuff that happened in the eighties. I'll know <laughs> that like that. Um, but so, so I've seen you talk about, and you've messaged me about that Gary Gullman's uh, special. Really, um, I don't. I, what word I want to use here? Really meant a lot to you, or, or, or touched you. Is is depression something that you have? dealt with in your life or it was just because it was such a, a beautiful special it's it's not and it was an absolutely beautiful special but but um i think what i told you was that gary gullman's episode of this podcast with you was what really oh is it, that right yeah and i and i go back to it all the time i mean part of me reaching out to you and wanting so excited to talk to you is you know, I'd love, love you to hook me up with Alan one of these days if he were. I just talked to Alan. <laughs> he sounds phenomenal. Yeah. And when you when you guys talk about the things he says and and um, you know that that was the first time I listened to this podcast because I'm a huge Gullman fan and uh, one of the last things I did before the pandemic was see him in Clearwater at the beginning of March in spring or yeah the beginning of March in spring training last year. And one of the great thrills of my life was when he name checked me from the stage. And I was like, oh, this is super cool. <laughs> um, but um, listening to, to the two of you talk and talk about Alan and talk about the things that you've gone through and, and the, those little advice things, you know, like um, you can't get to sleep one night. Well, has there ever been a time where you haven't fallen asleep and what's happened, right? It's not going to be that bad. This is just your, this is only your anxiety talking. This isn't real. Um, all that stuff. And I've gone back to that episode a few times to just listen to it. And, and, and I've 
I've um, sent it out on Twitter to lots of people to say, look, this is, this is a great list. The whole podcast is wonderful. Every episode is fantastic. Uh, but, but that one really, really did affect me in a, in a very positive way. Oh, that makes me feel good. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because it's so hard for me to remember all these um, episodes and what we talked about and stuff. But I, if that was an Alan heavy one, I mean, I, I literally just got off the phone with Alan just like an hour before this, my therapist, anyone who's not familiar, but he really is the best. And he just he actually just told me the story. So I found all these uh, and I've talked about this on here a little bit. I just found all these notes that my mother wrote to a therapist that I saw when I was seven. So this is no... I'm no, I'm not uh, Johnny come lately here with the anxiety and, um, and, and phobia, but I found all these notes and it was like really, um, uh, I don't know what word to use. Sometimes I lose words. This, maybe I wouldn't be a great play by play guy, but it was strange because it's all these notes when I was seven and it's like, Joe has a lot of phobias and he's afraid he doesn't talk about things. He leaves, he, he checks behind the shower curtain when he goes into the bathroom and he leaves his closet doors open. And it was all these things. And it was like, Joe needs to spend quality time with his father. And it was all these things that I still am dealing with now. And one of the things that it says in these notes is that Joe is afraid of AIDS and cancer and, and death. And I was like seven and I was just, kind of saying it's like it's it's crazy that i was like afraid of aids when i was seven but it was 1989 um, and it was all over that's all everyone was talking about and and uh i remember a dennis miller special from the late 80s and he's i understand gone off the rails a little bit lately but back yeah. then I mean, and he said it's gone to the point where now you can just get aids by hoping you don't get it <laughs> but that's that's sort of what everybody felt like at the time right so yeah i don't i don't blame a seven-year-old for being scared of that yeah so it's funny because as always i'm like oh my god i'm a mess what a crazy person i was even at seven i was afraid of aids and it sounds funny but so alan just told me this story about he was in um jackson hole wyoming i hope he doesn't mind me telling the story but he's in jackson hole wyoming with his family and they were you know cross going cross country on a camping trip and they're in a lake and it's like him and his son, who's about my little bit older than maybe he's like 12. And um, there's like a moose walks into the lake and starts swimming across the lake as the sun is setting. And Alan's thinking, God, this is perfect. And he's holding his son's hand in the lake. And his son says, Dad, I'm obsessing about AIDS. And, um, and I just, I, I start, I mean, we laugh because it's like such a funny thing to have this perfect moment in this kid. And first of all, this kid being like, feeling uh comfortable enough to to say and identify it that way where i would just have been like you know sobbing or whatever but it made me feel better in that he always has a great story to make me feel like all right so i'm not completely psychotic it's not crazy to be worrying about aids but i felt unprotected is really the lesson as, as a kid that nobody was there to be like no you're not going to get aids don't worry about it yeah and, and i think that's that's valid i don't remember i mean i was a a teenager when AIDS was AIDSing at, at the, you know, it's, it's highest rate. Um, so yeah, everyone was scared about it and everyone was, was wary. And, uh, but you know, you knew that if you're not having sex, if you're not having unprotected sex or sharing needles, you're not going to get AIDS. Um, I don't, I don't know that that was ever a big, uh, thing for me, but I mean, I, it's my, my, uh, cocktail is generally anxiety, panic, um, I've never been one of those. I hate myself people. I don't think, um, but um, 
but yeah, I, I mean, I, I had my first panic attack that I remember on the subway when I was 12. Wow. Um, maybe a little bit older. Uh, it was it was right around the time where the Tylenol uh, scandal happened, where the guy in Chicago was putting cyanide pills in Tylenol bottles. And this is why we have the vacuum seal now on, on all the medication. Um, but I, I remember that I ate, I think, a caramel bar. And it tasted kind of weird. And I thought, oh, crap, did someone put cyanide in this thing? And that sort of led to that spiral. And, and that was the first one. And so what did uh, like a panic attack for you look like at that time? Was it just mental? Was there physical aspects? Were you shaking or having trouble breathing? Or what, what did yeah. it look like? Felt like I couldn't have, was having trouble breathing. And, and, and it, that just sort of fed on itself. And that got worse and worse. And I wound up, wound up, calling 911 and, and oh, wow. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And, uh, and they all showed up in the subway station and it was very strange and weird. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what it was. It was that time it was, I couldn't breathe. Um, other times it's been like racing heart. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I have this wonderful combination of things where I, I have the reflux, so I always have some semblance of chest pain. Oh, um, God. I have a bad neck, so there's always something pain radiating down my left arm. Oh, so my I've God. always got symptoms of a heart attack, which is wonderful. Right. Um, and uh, so sometimes, you know, there, I, I still don't know what the triggers are, if there are specific triggers or if there are any, but... Um, but yeah, a lot of times I will talk myself into thinking that I'm having a heart attack. Um, less so now because here in Canada, where we have wonderful socialized medicine and universal health care, um, I've managed to get a couple of, um, heart stress tests in the last like three years. So having that getting through that and knowing that that's okay has, has helped me a lot. Um, but yeah, otherwise I, I pretty much all, I'll always think I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. I I've had that, uh, so many times throughout my life too, because of course, anxiety, panic, one of the big things that can happen is tightening chest, chest pains. And, and I I've manifested every kind of physical thing that you can from anxiety you know stomach ache chest pain headache eye pain pins and needles all the tooth pain all these crazy things and uh, again i've gotten much better because i can now i know the first thing i can think is it's probably this and i love um and i've probably mentioned on this show before too my friend greg stone told me about this thing because he was a nurse or or worked in a hospital what doing i forget what exactly his title was but they have a term like looking for a zebra. Like if, if you're in New York City and you hear like a clip clop, it's most likely a horse because there's horses in New York. But people like myself go, oh, my God, I bet it's a zebra, you know. And so they'll even say, we got a guy looking for zebras over here. And uh, I love that terminology. If it sounds like a horse and you're in a place where there's horses, it's probably a horse. You know, if you're 28 years old and, and, and fit, you're probably not having a heart attack. But 
you know, there's always the chance you are and you you start to get older and, and things are going to go wrong. This is the problem with hypochondria is that or anxiety is that eventually things do go wrong. And so there's always that part of you that's like, what if it is a heart attack and I'm just yeah. ignoring it? I'm just an asshole going, ah, it's probably just whatever. Um, totally. Um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm lucky enough to live down the block from my ex, who is a flight attendant, well-versed in all sorts of first aid and all that kind of stuff. So um, if, if there's something that's real bad, I'll, I'll check in with her. Um, but I, I've also thought, you know, I should probably have some aspirin around the house. Or isn't that what you're supposed to do if you, you feel like it, take an aspirin, which I don't have. Um, but, but, um, but I talked to my doctor a lot and he said to me many times, said, look, if, if it's a heart attack, you'll know. Right. And um, I don't necessarily believe him, right? Because yeah. I, I, I replay these stories in my head about, oh, this guy was driving around with somebody. And then they said, oh, he just said he wasn't feeling well. And two seconds later, he's driving the car into the side because he's having a massive heart attack and, and stuff like that. So that's definitely something that that preys on my mind. But again, the, the tests that I've had recently help allay that fear. And the fact that it all often happens around the same time, right? Like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, you're lying in bed, ready to go to sleep or trying to go to sleep. And, and all of a sudden this hurts and then that, and then which arm is this? And, and um, you know, that, and that I take a little bit of, of solace in that, um, that it is, you know, this is happening at a time where, I often feel this way. So it's probably, it's probably, as you would say, a horse and not a zebra. Yeah, exactly. And you start to get more wisdom and like, I've, I've dealt with this before. The thing I've heard about a uh, heart attack, which is amazing because like, again, at 22, I'm thinking I'm going to have a heart attack, but which, you know, there's always a story, everything you're worried about, there is a story of it happening to someone, you right. know, uh, there have been, you know, 18 year olds that had heart attacks, which is, I think probably the, I mean, not even the early, I might've been worrying about heart attacks when I was 13 or whatever. But the thing my, my uncle who's a paramedic said is with a heart attack, there's no way to move or breathe that relieves it. And I've laughed about that because I've had, I've called my uncle before in the past years ago when I was worse with this stuff and going, I think I'm having a heart attack. If I, if I lay down, it doesn't hurt so much. Or if I do this and he's like, if you're having a heart attack, you can't, bend over or, or lean back or uh, breathe through your nostrils and have it get better. It'll, right. it's not a, uh, it's not one of those things. And I've had that too with pains where I'm like, I think I have, you know, cancer of this or that. And uh, my therapist, Alan has said, cancer doesn't come and go. It comes and stays. It's not a thing that's, you know, your, your, your kidney hurts for an hour and then it doesn't hurt for two days and then it hurts for an hour. So that helps. Yeah. And I think I've, I've, I've heard, people say, maybe you say in the past that when you get to that point where you think you have something, then you're going through the same things as, as if you do like not the physical, whatever, but if you convince yourself you have cancer, then you're going through this whole thing. What, what the same, the same sort of stuff that someone who has it will go through and people, you know, have had cancer 20, 30, 40 times without ever having it but you go through the, the whole uh, mental energy uh, that, that that scare puts you in. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I mean, I'm, it's happened to me 
a million times, you know, with, if, uh, like you said, maybe you won't be a, wouldn't be a good play by play guy. Cause you couldn't come up with a word every time I can't come up with a word. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is my 14 concussions catching up to me and that that's it. I'm, I'm on the, the slippery slope downward and this is the beginning of the end of my brain function, but so far so good. Right now you've mentioned having your first panic attack when you were uh, 12, I think what's, what's the most recent panic attack and how many have you had bouts of, of having them frequently? Like I've had times in my life where I had, I was having them almost daily for like a month or two or, or whatever. Have you ever been in that kind of cycle where you're then, you're then having anxiety about having a panic attack, the idea of having a panic attack? That's interesting. I don't know if I, I mean, I guess so. Yeah. I've had the anxiety about having it. Um, the most recent was probably a week or a week and a half ago. Um, there's There have been some waves during the pandemic um, where it's been worse than, you know, it, it's weird because there are some times where I'm not anxious at all. And there are some times where I can't go to sleep without taking an Ativan. Um, but um, yeah, there was starting this new job sort of kicked into um, way more anxiety than I thought I was going to have. You know, I, I had, uh, um, I've been a broadcaster for 20 years, uh, worked in radio for 25, um, getting paid and seven years before that, not getting paid in like university radio and stuff like that. And, and through a lot of it, I'd done a lot of writing, blogging, websites, columns, whatever. Um, and then I got fired and I was remarkably zen about that. Like it was so weird that there was hardly any anxiety um, about being fired. Uh, and then I, I got this new job and I'm now a, a columnist for the Toronto Star, um, which is the biggest paper in Canada. Um, and it's a wonderful job and it's a fantastic gig and it's an incredible landing spot. And I sat down to write my first column, which was, hey, this is why I'm at the Star. And it was great. Uh, I don't know, the column was great. It was fine, I'm sure. But, it, you know, it, it was fine to write. And then I wrote the second one where it was actually a baseball story, right? This isn't about me anymore or about this new job or about my journey. It's a baseball story and this is what I'm going to be doing. And I had this weird crisis of confidence, like this might not be good enough. What, what happens if... Um, you know, I'm doing this and I'm revealed all of a sudden as this sure. enormous fraud, right? Who can't do anything. All I could do was talk on the radio. Um, and and I think the, the week sort of leading up to that and a few days after that, I wasn't feeling great. And uh, there were a couple of, of not huge panic attacks in there, but there were some panic attacks in there. And I found that just to be so odd and and i have a, a good friend who goes through the same stuff and we talk about this stuff with each other a lot and help each other through it um and she said it's the new job and i'm like no it's not the new, it's, what how could it be the new job but this is i've been doing this my whole life but i think that's that's probably what it was for sure and i even had a fever for like a week or oh, so wow. a very, very slight one but yeah um and it was, I think it was because I didn't know if I knew what the hell I was doing when 
it's something that I've, I've been doing for like, I've written, I wrote probably 1500 columns when I was on the radio. Um, but this is a whole, whole new ball game writing for a, a real honest to goodness newspaper with like editors and stuff. Right. Interesting. So that reminds me of uh, when I was the last time I had a real run of panic attacks was like spring, summer 2017, which was leading up to my wedding. I was getting married in August of 2017. And my my therapist said the same thing. In fact, that's when I started seeing him was in like March because I felt like I was really unraveling. And uh, my therapist, after seeing each other for a few times, he said, yeah, you're, you're getting married. That's that's what's happening. And I, I took it personally, of course. And I was like, but I love my wife. I, this is like the right woman. I'm not even any, I'm not doubting it or anything like that. I'm not having cold feet. And he goes, no, no. He's like, no, you're marrying the right woman. He's like, I can tell from talking to you. He's like, but it's uh, it's traumatic. Even, even good is traumatic. Even if you get a raise or if, you know, they say, hey, you're going to, you're calling the world series or, or, you know, whatever it is, um, a marriage, a kid, it's any kind of change can be traumatic. This is my therapist talking. Um, and, and they said, that's what it is. It's a huge life change. It's a huge commitment. Your whole family's getting together and it's a massive change. And it was a relief because I took it as like, oh my God, it must be, am I making a huge mistake? And it was like, no, it's just a change. And that's why going back to Alan, he's so good because you think I got him licked here. I'm going to say this and he's going to just come <laughs> apart. And he's like, no, nah, that's just that. That's not a big deal. Don't worry about that. You're getting married. It's traumatic. So it sounds like that is it. I mean, it's just a big change and, and it's traumatic to have a different gig, I think. I think so. And, 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 you know, maybe it's also part of mourning the old gig, right. Which I, I don't know that I really did. And I don't know if it all hit me until uh, there's a game and I'm not calling it because, um, but but maybe, but this is, I mean, it's not to say that what I'm doing now isn't fantastic. It really is. It's, it's, um, it's another dream gig, but you, you just reminded me, um, I had a massive panic attack, maybe the worst one I've ever had on the plane, on the way to my honeymoon. Um, and, and I think that one stemmed like it was from the moment we took off to the moment we landed and maybe even a little bit farther. And it was embarrassing as hell because this is the person I've been married to for 30 hours who never seen me like this before. Um, but I think, I think it stems from some deep seated belief, which is weird given the life that I've had that good things don't happen to me. Like I'm not lucky in that way. Right. Like I don't get, I don't get to have nice things. And meanwhile, um, you know, to be a big league play by play broadcaster for forever and to, to be, um, you know, I have two wonderful children and, and I've got this, I've got a great life and I still, I still walk around believing that good things don't happen to me for some reason. Yeah, no, I, I have the exact same thing or somehow that I don't deserve them and I'm going to be punished for them. And I, I, I'm not even like a religious guy, but I'm like, God's going to punish me, this this God. And it reminds me of Seinfeld, uh, the TV show. And George said, God will never let me be successful. And he goes, but you don't believe in God. And he says, well, I do for the bad things. That's right. uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel the same way of like, there's I, I shouldn't be enjoying this for some reason or yeah, nothing. I can't have anything great. And in reality, I look around and I'm like, oh, I got a lot of great stuff. I've been extremely 
fortunate. Um, but yeah, it is hard too with a partner who's seeing you have this anxiety attack or panic attack. And naturally they take it personally in some way of like, are, are you all right? What is this? And exactly the same thing. You know, we're in like, you know, Paris and I'm freaking out. And she's like, what is wrong with like, it's not going to get any better than this. And I have this thing where I, then I start to spin that I'm like, I'm not even enjoying like the greatest moment of my life, uh, which sends you deeper into anxiety, um, which I guess you got to just accept. It's all about acceptance and not fighting, I guess. As we learn that now in our, you know, advanced, well, my advanced, not so much your advanced age, but yeah. you're, uh, <laughs> you got a dozen years, uh, I've got a dozen years on you, but yeah, it's, it's great that you're, you're learning all that stuff and, and that I'm starting to figure it out too. And, and that, uh, you know, it's to, to just let it go and, and uh, stay, uh, that, that whole mindfulness thing, right? stay stay in the present and don't uh don't worry about what could come of it it's taken me a long long time to to learn that and i don't know that um i'm done learning it but it's it, it really is it, it i mean that's the only way to get through all this stuff yeah it's and it's so difficult because it's all counterintuitive to be accepting because the the your intuition is to fight it like a panic attack to try to you know, like wrestle out of it and undo it. And it's almost like quicksand. You have to kind of just let it happen and then eventually crawl out or whatever, however quicksand works. But um, it is that thing of trying to force it that makes it so much difficult and so much worse. And it, it really is counterintuitive. And I, I don't know, I'm, it, it, it's so much easier. It's one thing to learn it and then to practice it becomes even more uh, difficult, which it does help because like I just had this where I was, feeling I was in a high stress situation. I was feeling like pins and needles in my face and hands. And I was like, oh, this is probably from anxiety. This is like a number one, not a number one, but like a, a top symptom of anxiety. But then there's part of me that goes, what if it's Bell's palsy? Isn't that something that, and I start Googling it, even though if you Google pins and needles, face and hands right now, it'll talk about either frostbite or anxiety. And it's like, oh, that's probably anxiety. But then there below that is, you know, um, I think it's Bell's palsy where your face kind of yeah. does whatever. And Never so I'm Google. Like, yeah. And I'm like, let me research that. Yeah. And that's what my therapist is always like. You, you can't Google. He's like, think of it. Uh, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. He's like, think of it like alcohol. You, you're just someone that can't Google. Nobody like, should okay. Google symptoms of, yeah. of anything, you know? And, um, yeah, it, it can't, it can't possibly lead to anything good. No, it you almost really it almost never does. So I, I want to ask, because you've referenced it a couple of times and I want to, I don't know what you could say and can't say, but you've talked about being fired or, or you're no longer uh, play by play. Can you talk, was there a controversy or what happened there? No, basically. Um, yeah. I don't know how, well, I mean, there's nothing deep to go into. I, I uh, um, that happened on, on your Thanksgiving. I got uh, at a meeting with my boss and I was sitting right here and, and um, uh, he popped on the Zoom and he said, hey, how you doing? And then this other window popped open and it was an HR guy. And I was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. As soon as I saw the HR guy, I knew that they were firing me. I didn't know why. And, and um, you know, all I was told was basically, you know, we're going in a different direction. And um, I wish I had said, oh, I'd like to go in that direction too. <laughs> Uh, but I, I wasn't thinking at the time. 
and that was it. It was like a, a three minute conversation and, wow. uh, and uh, it was, it was over. They haven't hired a replacement yet. Um, don't know who that's going to be. And, Could you and put I in really, a word? Cause I, I really, <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to be someone who played big league baseball before. That's really not um, fair. But otherwise, I don't know. I don't know how much of a word I, I my word will do. Right. Um, in, in this situation. But yeah, that it would be cool to see you in that chair. Um, and so, cause it's interesting now because I think you had tweeted about it and, and I saw it in um, uh, this day and age, when you see someone leaving a job, I just assumed, you know, they caught you doing blow in the clubhouse or, you know, you, you, you said some crazy thing on air, but it, nothing like that. Just nope. Never even done blow in the clubhouse. No, come on. No, not even once. <laughs> this uh, is a no, safe place. It's really nothing. There was, it was no controversy. There was no, and you know, I was, they, they said, this has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your ability. This is just, you know, we're making a change and it, you know, it's their ball. If they want to pick it up and go home or, or if they want to play with it without me, then it's, it's really up to them. So there's nothing I could do. And uh, it sucked and it still sucks. I was hoping to do that into my, old age and, you know, be one of those guys who broadcasts 30, 40 years with the same team. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that, that, that doesn't get to happen. Now, how has, has there been like an outpouring from the fan base saying it was really, nice, it was really nice stuff, yeah. really nice from a lot of people. Yeah. Um, brought me to tears a couple of times. Um, they, they told me on Thanksgiving, they announced it on the Friday and that whole Friday and Saturday, I just sort of sat watching Twitter and 98% of it was just really nice and wonderful. And, and, and uh, um, you know, there are people who've said, you're the reason I'm a baseball fan or you're the reason that I got into um, podcasting about the baseball or, or writing about it or, or you know, my father and I can only talk about baseball and you were sort of the soundtrack. And, and it was really beautiful and um, heartfelt and wonderful stuff. The, the beautiful thing about being a Blue Jays broadcaster is that you get a whole country. Like, right, you know, right. I know in the States, it's a big deal when a broadcaster does a national game. Every game I did was a national game. Our broadcast network goes from coast to coast to coast. So you know, people in Saskatchewan are, are telling me how they have the radio on while they're out on their tractors um, and and listening to, to me all the time. And I've been, you know, when you're when you're around for 20 years, um, it's weird that people grow up listening to you. But people, you know, it's it's is that was so strange to wrap my head around. But as someone who gets a lot of crap on Twitter on a regular basis, um that was really, really, really nice. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And there's almost like hearing you talk about it, there's almost this strange part that you're like, you're almost grateful it happened in, in a small way because it allows you to get so many nice, I'm sure you get a lot of nice messages anyway. I, I would have preferred it happened in like 20 years. Of course, of course. Messages. Yeah. But, but well, the, and there was, a, all, there was a similar, not the same level, but a, a, a wonderful outpouring too when we announced that I got this new job People were so happy for me that I'd landed on, you know, so many people said, you're going to land on your feet. And, and I, I wasn't sure, 
because I've seen so many people lose jobs in broadcasting and never get back into it. Um, so this, um, the fact that, that I landed where I did was, is phenomenal. And, and a lot of people, again, said some really, really nice things last month or, or earlier this month when we announced that. Yeah, it's interesting because, and you kind of touched on it with a play-by-play because obviously I'm a huge sports fan and baseball fan, but play-by-play, particularly in baseball, because it's so conversational, is it really is an intimate thing where you feel like you're friends with the people. I really feel like I know them. And as a lot of these guys that I've grown up with for almost 40 years now or or whatever, 30-something years, I start to get worried as Al Michaels ages of like, and Keith Jackson is what meant so much to me and all these guys, you start to get like this personal thing. Cause you realize you've spent hours and hours and hours and listening to them and you get to know their sense of humor and their, uh, all, all these things about them. And like you said, baseball is something that is shared. Like my relationship with my father is defining in my life, but that's something we've always had since we were kids is that, and you share that third voice um and i've been was on the other side of play-by-play person uh being let go with don orsillo i don't know if you know don who is the voice of the red sox and tremendous broadcaster and and just a really funny guy and he was let go or however it worked with the red sox his contract was up and they went a different direction with dave o'brien who's a fine broadcaster himself obviously but orsillo and i was like heartbroken and the Red Sox had won the World Series with him and and it like almost made me cry and similarly I tweeted at him and I was like I hope he gets this message and sees it and I can't remember what I wrote but something along the lines of I I love you this is like bumming me out or whatever and so I've sort of been on the other end of your uh, situation he's now the voice of the Padres and I have the MLB package and I'll throw on the Padres game just to hear my old friend but it's almost like looking at an ex on instagram or something you're like that's not our guy anymore um but it is this it does feel like an intimate relationship because you've spent hours and hours and hours with that person i'm sure you've obviously experienced that as your own being a baseball sure, fan yeah i mean i did with with tom cheek and then to get to work with him was incredible i was listening to him on the radio when i was seven years old and, and i got to work with him it was it was incredible and and it, it is the, the impact is amazing um, because yeah, people feel like they know you. And, and I hosted the, the post-game call-in show too for 17 years. So I was always interacting, uh, with, with fans all the time. And, and that's just another window into who you are and, and the back and forth and social media does that too, allows us to reach, you know, people that we've never even dreamed of being able to talk to, uh, 15, 20 years ago, but it's, you know, people see you as a friend and as someone they they really know, um, which is, I mean, I totally get it, but it's a really surreal experience because every, not every, but so many um, encounters that I've had with people who are complete and utter strangers to me, they feel like they've known me for decades. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a very similar experience, obviously. And it's funny because even um, talking to you and talking about someone like a Don Orsillo or for me, Sean McDonough and these guys, uh, it reminds me that I have that role in other people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. And uh, sometimes I'll meet people after a show and they'll say, what, what's going on with your dad <laughs> or how's your uh, whatever? And I'm like, oh, right. And, and it is... Uh, 
a wonderful thing. And, and like you mentioned, you have to deal with a lot of negativity and stuff and people telling you you suck and you, they could do better at your job, which is painful. And somehow those as human beings have a negativity bias, those kind of stick more, oh, yeah. um, oh, sure. of course. But to when have, you suck, it's harder than 500. You're amazing. So. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it really does. So it is uh, a beautiful thing that uh, I guess we get we get to experience. And it's a good reminder to be grateful for those things and those moments, I guess. And it's a, it's a remind for me, too. It's a, it's a reminder that, I mean, you really have to be nice to everybody because this, you know, I've I've heard people talk about other people who they met once for 15 seconds um, who was rude to them. And that colors your whole experience. That guy's an asshole because I met him once for 10 seconds and he wasn't super wonderful. Nice. So it, it, it took a long time to get my head around the fact that, um, and it sounds so egotistical and unseemly and I don't like the way it sounds, but the truth is that, that you or me, when somebody meets us, it makes way more of an impact usually than us meeting them. Like if I've met 50 people in a day who are all big baseball fans, they're like, I met Mike Wilner. And I'm like, this isn't really not that big a deal. Right. But, but I mean, and then, you know, 15 years later, you see them again and they're like, Oh, I met you that time at the thing. And you have zero memory of right. it at all. But that impact that you make means that you, I mean, first impressions are often only impressions and that the people carry with them for years and years and years when you're even a semi-public figure like you and I are. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember hearing a thing or someone quoted Michael Jordan about how he dressed so nice always. And they said, you know, when I walk from the, the gym to the car, he's like, there's thousands of people trying to get this one glimpse of me in that one moment of your life so i you know wanted to look his best or whatever for that for that moment and and i, I remember saying yeah, that you to, and i are exactly like michael jordan is is the takeaway from 100 percent, and i dress as well as him too with my uh comedy on state hoodie and my <laughs> iowa state t-shirt um but i i remember hanging out with a big name drop here colin quinn years ago when we were walking around and went to the subway and he kept getting recognized and i said man what a incredible gift that he's a level of celebrity that he can walk around and not be mobbed or anything but i'm like you are making so many people's day just by them bumping into you and seeing you it's uh, it's so exciting and of course colin has one of the great jokes of all time so many of them but he had a great joke about his level of celebrity he saw three guys moving a couch and they went colin quinn hey can you grab this end and he's, like, <laughs> he's like that's my level of um of celebrity but no it is, it is it is it is a um a great gift. And I, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but I do want to baseball nerd out at the end here and ask some, some baseball questions. Do you have a favorite play by play guy or who are like a couple of your friends? It's probably hard to pick number one, I guess, but Cheek, easily Tom cheek was number one for me. Yeah. He's, he was the sound of my whole childhood and youth and getting to meet him was unbelievable. And, and having him, like get to the point I only had, I only worked with him for two and a half years before he got sick. Um, but, but getting to the point where he could be playful with me on the air and we would, you know, just have a good time. He would crack jokes and try to trip me up and, and it was amazing, but he was, 
and he's the gold standard for me but obviously you know in scully is uh, is ridiculous and, and uh <laughs> you know there there are so many really good play-by-play people around the game but uh the two of them definitely stand out both yeah. hall of famers so that's cool yeah, I mean, Scully really is amazing. And obviously, I've never been a play-by-play guy, but to do entire games by yourself just seems like the most Herculean task to me. Um, I've done it once, once, and it was more than enough. Yeah, I, I just, I can't imagine. Now, I don't know if you know all these guys. I mean, do you know Kenny Albert by any chance? Do you know him personally? Now, a lot of those U.S. national guys, like I know, I know the team's, the American League, uh, I know the team broadcasters, but the big national, big national guys, I haven't run into a lot of. Well, so I, I listened to him once, and he said he's one of the only guys, I think maybe the only guy, I don't want to speak on a term, but I remember hearing that, and I could be wrong, that does all four major sports. And he said, and I thought this was surprising, is that hockey is actually the easiest sport because he's saying it's, it's constant. You're just you're just saying what's happening. And baseball, he said, was the most difficult because it is so conversational and there's so much downtime that you have to fill and, and be interesting during. Uh, what what is your take and feeling on that? I I don't know that hockey's the easiest. I, I did a lot of hockey um, when I was in university, um, and I loved it. And it's so much fun because it's so fast and and. There's always something happening and it's true. There's no downtime and all the downtime is filled by the other guy. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of fun to broadcast. It's, it's difficult in that. I mean, it's, it's not difficult if you're just saying, well, Toronto shoots it into the Boston zone and then, you know, Boston. And I, I, I once did a game where I was the, the color commentator Um it was an Eric Lindros junior hockey Memorial cup game, which is the championship of Canadian major junior hockey. And it went into three overtimes and the play-by-play guy never bothered to learn anybody's name. So he just <laughs> used team names the whole time. But so that that's, I always found that difficult. And I had my charts in front of me and this is the lines and this is the defensive pairings and the numbers were huge. And so um, I found that, that difficult. Um, but so much fun to do hockey. Um, baseball is, I've always thought of it as like a three hour conversation that you're having with your partner and with the person who's listening. And it is way more difficult because there's so much more time to fill. But at the same time, I, I always, I often wrote down some notes about, I'm going to want to talk about this and I find time to talk about this and this. And I very rarely would find time to do it. Uh, because I was so into the game and into trying to you know, sort of paint the picture of what was happening on the field. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it can be a long, like last, last year, um, when the Blue Jays were in the playoffs. The second game of this best two out of three, they lost the first game and game two, they're down seven, nothing in the second inning. Those last seven innings were real long. Yeah, I imagine, especially towards the end of the season, you've been working with the same partner for a long time. You start to run out of stories, and <laughs> and and sometimes, and some of the great moments I mentioned, Don Orsillo, him and Remy would have these great moments where they're just laughing and being silly, and start to look into the crowd and try to come up with 
something to talk about or find. And, and there's only so much you can really let it breathe for long periods of time because at some point you're like, they're going to start hitting the TV going, what's going on? My sound is screwed up or whatever, which that would give me anxiety. I mean, I have that anxiety a lot and I've gotten much better with, with this podcast, particularly of like, uh, how, how am I going to fill an hour? What if we hit a dead spot? What, what's going to happen? And I can't even imagine 162 games, three hour, four hour games, just going, Oh my God, I have, nothing i've told every story and it really is uh tricky and sometimes with baseball too you know the pitchers walking around the mound and the the batters leaving the batter's box and it's hard to just go okay here comes the pitch because there's another eight seconds before the pitch comes yeah but i mean we had um bless his heart jason fraser who's the blue jays i think still the all-time appearance leader and it took him a good 15 20 minutes to throw every pitch so, you know, the guy who, who came in like 1,100 games and his innings are taking forever. Um, he's a lovely man. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, and those are the points in time where you look around the field and, you know, doing radio. I don't have the pictures to tell me, to, to tell stories for people. And on TV, you can take a lot longer of a breather. Sure. Uh, radio, you, you, if you don't talk long enough, there's a siren goes off and you think you're off the air. Uh, but that's when you talk about, oh, look, the shortstop is kicking at the dirt and the center fielders doing deep knee bends. And these guys can't stand how long this guy's taking just as much as we can't stand how long this guy's taking. Right. And I imagine you could throw out, you could start talking about Bull Durham or, or whatever it is or um, stuff like that. Um, I want to let you go, but I want to ask one more hard hitting journalism oh. question here. Joe Buck, where do you fall on Joe Buck as a fan? Because I'm a guy, and I'll just give my thought. I love Joe Buck. I think he's fantastic. I really do. But he is a guy. People loathe this guy. Yeah. I mean, they really hate him. And I always thought this was so fascinating that somehow every fan base thinks he is a homer for the other team. I know Red Sox fans that are convinced that Joe Buck is obsessed with the Yankees. He loves the Yankees. And the exact op- Yankee fans think he just blows all the Red Sox players. I find him to be first class. I really think he's fantastic. And I don't know how much you can say. I don't want you to get in trouble here as a fan. I'm not in the industry anymore. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. So do you, do you like him? Does he, cause I think the big, the big knock on him is he doesn't get excited enough, but I'm a guy who likes a, an understated, let it breathe. I love Dick Stockton. Just if it stays fair, home run, I, you know, I like that kind of stuff. The Bernie Carbo home run. He says deep to center. We're tied up. I, I like that kind of stuff. So that's the knock on him. Where do you fall on Joe Buck? I was I was someone who was the opposite. I, I, I used to always say exciting things are excited, so I'm going to get excited about them. But um, but when you're a national guy like Joe Buck is, um, first of all, he's doing it perfect if everybody thinks that he hates their team uh, because that means he's playing it as down the middle as you could you could possibly be. Right. Um, I, I'm, I think he's, I mean, he's an excellent broadcaster. There's no question about it. I have no hate in my heart at all for Joe Buck. The weird thing is I ha- I've really only heard him do football um, because, you know, for years and years and years, even though the Blue Jays were never in the playoffs, I was still working the playoffs because we broadcast them across Canada uh, right. on the radio. We use the ESPN feed. So I 
listen to all these games on the radio and never really listen to, to TV broadcasts of national baseball games. Um, but I mean, I, I, he's a, he's a very skilled broadcaster and I, I, every time I've heard him, I've enjoyed it. And I, I totally get why everybody thinks that he hates their team, but I think that just means that he's doing a really good job, but I've heard way more world series called by Dan Shulman than I've heard called by Joe Buck. Interesting. I like, I like Shulman as well. Uh, by the way, you want a nice little story here. Talk about please. imposter syndrome and, and feeling, um, feeling like you don't measure up. If you're, um, if you reach the point where you're the play-by-play broadcaster for a major league team, one would think that you're probably the best at your job in your town, right? Sometimes even in your state, you're the best one. Thanks to Dan Shulman, I'm not even the best to come out of my like 600 person primary uh, grade school because we went to the same school. Oh, wow. So I've been chasing that for a long time. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, He's a wonderful human, by the way. No, no, he stinks. I hate him now. No, 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 he's great. And I I just want to say for my own thing, Sean McDonough is another guy. I don't know if you know him at all, but uh, he is my favorite broadcaster of all time because he just has this great, subtle Boston sarcasm. You can tell he's got a little bit of a, chip on his shoulder and he's just good enough a, a homer but he's a great national guy and he's made me laugh and he has my all-time favorite baseball call in history where it was a game it was i think it was just a local game nesson or whatever it was red Sox, and i forget it might have been cecil fielder or something like that for the uh tiger and tim wakefield was pitching a knuckleball pitcher and he threw a knuckleball and you could tell right as he released it it just it didn't knuckle and um, Sean McDonough's call, he goes, uh-oh. And, he said that, and Cecil Fielder hits a ball to left field that has not landed yet. I mean, 600-foot bomb. But as soon as it came out, the whole call was, uh-oh. And uh, just magical call. And- I wish that I had I'd ever had the presence of mind to do that. Um, that's, I, I actually saw the first knuckleball that Tim Wakefield ever threw as a pro in A-ball. I would broadcast for his A-ball team the 1989 Welland Ontario Pirates. He was a third baseman hitting about a buck 20 in his second year at short season single A. And then some one game in August, he came out on the mound and we're like, what the hell is this? And he was just flipping up knuckleballs. And two years later, he's, he's in the major leagues. Wow. My uh, Sean McDonough did the 1992 world series for CBS and the Jays won. So I'll remember him forever for that. My closest to the, uh Oh, was, in 2015, when 2015 or 16, I think it was, yeah, it was 16 because the Blue Jays were sort of teetering towards the end of the season after that great year in 15. The Red Sox, I think, wound up winning the division that year, but the Jays clinched at Fenway. Um, the next to last home series of the season was against Baltimore, and Mark Trumbo came up to the plate. And I said to, to um, Joe Siddle, who was um, the color guy at the time, who in his, by the way, final professional game with the Pawtucket Red Sox, caught a Tomo Oko perfect game. But uh, I said to Joe, 
it's interesting, you know, Mark Trumbo is leading the league in home runs and he's got 45 or however many home runs he had. And he's never, he hasn't hit one against the Blue Jays all season. And this is like the 19th time they've played each other and he homered on the next pitch. Wow. Yeah. Those are, those are always fun. By the way, uh, McDonough on those, that 92 World Series or 93 World Series, he had a great call himself on the Joe Cotter home run, which was, uh, Blue Jays win and still world champions. He had the he did the 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 fight boxing call. Still nice. still world champs. Uh, he had a great one there. And then there was another game. Sorry, now I'm just completely off the rails right. here with mental health. But um, it's, it's all good for our mental health to yeah, reminisce like this. I'm having a great time. But he had a couple other great ones. He had Red Sox Indians had a nice little rivalry mid '90s or, or late '90s, I should say. And Pedro hit. Junior Ortiz and Junior Ortiz started barking at Pedro and uh, McDonough said something along the lines of he's right. How dare Pedro Martinez throw at Hall of Famer Junior Ortiz. <laughs> and I love that McDonough wasn't afraid to throw in a little that that just I Boston Irish uh, sarcasm and another game. I think this might have even nah, maybe it wasn't a national game. It must have been a local game, but it was interleague play and it was Giants Red Sox. And he said, you know, a lot of people ask me, is anyone a real jerk? Have you ever met any jerks in the game? And he, it was on Barry Bonds. And he said, that guy right there is a, is a jerk. It's something along those lines. And he just said it on the broadcast. And I thought, wow, this is wild. He's really just, just throwing it out there that Bonds is an asshole, which, of course, everyone had said before. But to hear it on a broadcast, I was no, that's really something. taken yeah, back by it. That's not something I ever did. I only met Bonds once, but uh, and he was fine, but it was in a giant scrum. So uh, he did tell one reporter that the question he asked was stupid, but he was fine with everybody else. But uh, yeah, I know I, I I would never have had the confidence to say that on the air. You know, I spent the first sixteen years of my broadcasting career as the kid with these two well cheek for a couple of years, but than Jerry Howard, these giants who were like 20, 25 years older than me. So I, I never developed that like confidence of, hey, you're the guy. Um, and then by the time I got to be the old guy, I was, I was only around for a couple of years. Right. Well, we've lost everyone that's not a baseball fan and that's okay. What can you do? I'm sorry. You know, you know, no, it's, it's my fault. I get uh, nerded out. I get excited, but um, this was really great, Mike. I really uh, appreciate it. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. And I think people will get a lot out of it. I hope. And I hope, I hope some of these fans are also baseball fans. I hope so too. We didn't even talk about the panic attack that I had in the broadcast booth. We get back to mental health, but I don't want, we still you can, here. if you want. I mean, I, I got a little time here. I'm worried about your time. If I, I, I would love, no, I actually, I got all night. I actually have that written down. Uh, have you ever, <laughs> what's the worst uh, case of anxiety you've had while in the booth? So maybe we can bring it back. I'll warn people up front that we're going to just geek out on baseball for 10 minutes and we'll come back to panic. Uh, please tell me about it. It was at the Trop, which is an awful place oh, anyway. It is. Um, and it was, um, I, I, it was in 2018 and this was before I had that first heart test. And I was a little concerned. You know, there, were, there were times when uh, the reason I wanted it was because I would get these like quick little dizzy spells, like less than a second. And, and it was all anxiety driven, as it turns out. Um, but it was a getaway day. It was a day game after a night game. So I hadn't slept well the night before. 
and the hotel that we stay in was haunted and that's a whole other thing, but that never affected me. But, um, and I was working with uh, not my usual partner. He had that series off. So we had Jeff Blair, who's a wonderful uh, former writer, now a radio host up here in Toronto. Um, and working with him for the first time. And I really liked him. We get along well and all that stuff, but um, it's like 1220 or so. And we're on the air at 1230 and I'm starting to feel, you know, a little grabby in the chest and, and I'm not feeling right. And uh, like the color drains from my face and stuff. And I don't know what to do because I'm with Blair, who's not a broadcaster who's never, you know, I can't leave him alone, right? And I'm thinking, if I'm having a heart attack, this is going to be really bad. But if I leave Blair alone to do this game, then we're totally screwed. Not that he couldn't have done something, but um, had my regular partner been in there, I would have gone down uh, to see the doctor or whatever, the team doctor, say, hey, I think I'm something's wrong. And I just sat there and I'm thinking, okay, this is really, really, really bad. And this could get even worse. But as but I tried to like distract myself. And I thought, all right, you know what? I'll try to do the open. And if I can do the open, then that'll be all right. And I did the open. And then we came back. And I thought, if I can get through the top of the first, it's probably not a heart attack. And I don't know if there's any rationality to that at all. But that's what I thought. If I could just get through the top of the first... And, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's, it's, it's probably panic, but it might not be. And I'm not the best, like, um, flyer, especially out of Florida where it gets super windy and super stormy a lot of the time. And so that's something that I'm anticipating as is going to be a bad thing. And we're obviously flying out right after the game. Um, but I just said, if I, if I get through the top of the first, then it'll be okay. And I can't leave this guy alone. And I got through the top of the first and then the bottom of the first started and that went okay. And I started to feel a little bit better. And as soon as I started to feel a little bit better, I was like, it was a panic attack. I'm not going to die. I can broadcast the rest of this game. And even if I feel like this, I, I'm, I'm not dying. I'm going to be okay. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's what got me through it. God, that's like I've had the exact experience, and it's like it—it's like uh, what do you call like triggering just hearing the story because I know that feeling so well. I've done full forty-five minute headlining sets where I'm just having an anxiety attack the entire time, and you start to see the light of like, okay, where I think I think it's fine. I think we're gonna get through it. And I've done a late night TV set. I, I did Conan like that, same exact thing, and just going, all right, well, I guess I'm doing this one while having an anxiety attack. <laughs> Uh, luckily, I didn't think it was a heart attack. I just I knew it was a panic attack, but I knew, God, I don't want to have a panic attack on TV. But yeah. you kind of just hold on and accept and go, all right, I'm going to get through this. But it's and brutal. I wonder if I I wonder if I listen back to that game if there's any indication at all. And I wonder if you, you know, watch that set or would people have told you no? We had no idea that anything was going on. Yeah, people have. They're like, because uh, I've told people when they watch it, like, I, I had no idea. But that's the thing that's so fascinating about it is like inside you're losing your yeah. mind. And maybe you hear little things in your voice or whatever. But no, it is a, 
unpleasant feeling, but you got through it. And, and it's, it, it helps me because I'm like my worst fear. And again, this is an Alan thing. He's like, your worst fear came true and having a panic attack on TV or on the radio. And it was fine. You got through it. So. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it's, it's even triggering for me too. Just talking about it. I'm like fluttering up a little bit, but uh, such as, such as uh, the way these things go, I guess. Exactly. So, well, Mike, thanks again. I don't know. I have to figure it out if we have to, should edit out the baseball stuff, but I, I like it. I say, you know, fuck them. If they don't like baseball, then I don't want them as fans anyways, because uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I hope you did too. Thanks so much for having me or being um, on, I should say. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I, it was, it was wonderful. Thank you uh, so much. I really appreciate getting the chance to, to talk to you and getting a chance to talk about all this stuff too. Yeah, it was fun. And, and what's your, what's the Twitter? Where, where can they read you and where can they find you? They can, the Twitter is Wilderness, like wilderness, but with an N instead of a, a D there because I, I tried to be cute or something. I love and, it. Uh, and uh, thestar.com. The I, I write for the Toronto Star. So all my stuff goes up on thestar.com. And uh, there will be a podcast soon. So people want to hear my voice. A lot of people around up on this side of the border anyway. So we're going to have a, a a podcast coming out as we get closer to the baseball season. Uh, and I have no idea where, where people can find that when, when that happens, wherever people, wherever you get your podcast, that's all you safe get to your say. podcast. Yeah, yeah. That's something though. Awesome. Mike, thanks so much, man. I really enjoyed the hell out of this. I appreciate it. And uh, stay in touch. I love talking baseball. Oh, that'd be, that'd be great. Thank you. You are, you're living a life that I would absolutely love to. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled to stay in touch with you. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Mindful Metal Jacket is hosted by comedian Joe List. Produced by Joe List. Edited by Matt Kleinschmidt. Executive producers Robert Kelly and Matt Kleinschmidt for the Laugh Button Podcast.